Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 12, Ancient Egypt, The Old Kingdom. So here we are, at the beginning of the story of ancient Egypt, the land of the River Nile, pharaohs, pyramids, mummification and statues. Before we start on our journey, we need to remind ourselves what brought us to this point. Now, if you want an in-depth analysis of what happened in the millenniums leading up to now, I strongly recommend listening to episode 23 of the first volume on pre-dynastic Egypt. Should you not want to do that, let me give you a brief synopsis of what we discovered. The lands of the modern-day Arab Republic of Egypt were much more fertile 10,000 years ago and agricultural lifestyles emerged. However, aridification events forced the population to gravitate around the Nile River. These lands always remained fertile and needed little encouragement with the reliable floodwaters. It would be fair to say that the progression into sedentary and stratified city-states happened much more slowly in Egypt than in the Near East. There appeared to be much more of a clinging onto pastoralism and egalitarianism than in Mesopotamia. It may actually be the case that migrating peoples from the Near East brought with them the knowledge of more advanced societies, so the Egyptians would become much more like the Mesopotamians when they entered the Nakada culture period after 4400 BCE. It would be during this period that peoples would have come together into larger societies close to the Nile River, with plenty of evidence of ceramic and metalwork. Some of the graves from this period suggest that there was more of a class-based society. Certainly, there was a strong and far-reaching trade network, as demonstrated by the diversity of artefacts discovered dated to this period. Towards the end of the 4th millennium BCE, peoples were definitely irrigating the Nile River, large cities had emerged and early writing in the form of hieroglyphs was being done. There was distinct cultures that had emerged in Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. We're not quite sure if it was Menes or Nama who united the two entities in 3100 BCE to create the first dynasty of a united Egypt but there is cause to believe that Nama and Menes are the same person, so we're just not particularly sure. However, that does bring us up to date and to a point where we can discuss what happened next. The first capital of Egypt was the city of Thinis, but as of yet, we don't know exactly where this is. 
although we do suspect that it is closely linked culturally and geographically to Abydos, thanks to surviving texts. Nama Palette. It's not often I dive straight into citations and recommendations, but with most chronological presentations on ancient Egypt, you will find that the Nama Palette is the biggest target as a starting point. Now, I intend to stay in the world of ancient Egypt for the next 10 podcasts. So we walk together through the next two and a half thousand years and also tie up those loose ends which connect ancient Egypt to the story of the ancient Near East, which we have already learned about. 10 podcasts really doesn't do ancient Egypt justice. And as such, I would like to recommend the work of Dominic Perry, and his podcast called The History of Egypt Podcast. And for reading material, I have been using The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson. These two resources are recommended for those interested in Egyptology specifically. These two resources also use the Nama palette as a launching point for their work. Now, Nama, we have already discussed as potentially the first pharaoh of a united Egyptian empire, possibly synonymous with Menis. The palette is a shield-shaped piece of siltstone and is carved with various images, and the stone is thought to date to the end of the 4th millennium BCE, which is where we left our story at the end of volume 1. The images have excited Egyptologists who have desperately tried to interpret it as an account of events that occurred at the very foundation of the origins of the ancient kingdom of Egypt. A king is depicted in that iconic smiting pose. We see this a lot in Egyptian artwork. The king is standing over a subject. In one hand the king is holding the subject who is on his knees by the hair. In the other hand, the king is often wielding a heavy mace over his head in readiness to strike the poor subject. This is an image that is typical and iconic of contemporary images of pharaohs. We have seen a similar kind of image at tomb 100 in Hierakonpolis, which we mentioned in episode 23 of volume 1 and it dates to an earlier time in the 4th millennium BCE. Here we see various images of individuals in smiting stances, and one in particular shows an individual appearing to smite three subjects. It was Hierakonpolis where the Nama palette had also been discovered at the end of the 19th century. Hierakonpolis, as we have seen with many other ancient people and palaces, is a Greek name which tells us that our earliest comprehensive literary sources about the nature of the world were written by the Greeks, but the Egyptians themselves would have called this place Nekon. It is to be found on the banks of the Nile in Upper Egypt, and its city deity would have been Horus who was depicted as a falcon. 
Necken was undoubtedly a very important cultural centre of early Upper Egypt, as the tombs and the discovery of the Nama palette there appeared to testify. The appearance of the falcon on the Nama palette directly overseeing the main image of the king smiting a subject is also probably significant in tying together the various aspects of these ancient Egyptian origins. The other important aspect is the choice of clothing. The smiting king on the palette is wearing a hejet, which is the white crown of Upper Egypt, which we can identify in many ancient images. So this could suggest that Nama, if indeed this is King Nama, as suggested by the hieroglyphs on the palette, was fundamentally an Upper Egyptian. However, on the reverse side of the Nama palette, there exists a much smaller image of a king wearing an alternative crown. This crown is called a Deshret, and is the red crown of the Delta, or in other words, Lower Egypt. So could the Nama palette be a symbol of Nama's success in subjugating Lower Egypt into the empire of Upper Egypt and unifying the two. Artwork after this period shows a new type of crown and we can also see that this can be worn by the falcon who we have suggested to be the deity of the city of Necken named Horus. The new crown appears to depict a combination of the white hejet and the red deshret into something which is commonly referred to as a skent. So this definitely suggests a unification of cultures and one of the first instances of the skent that we see is on the falcon of a pharaoh referred to as Jet, who we know today as a pharaoh of the first dynasty. Dynasties Previously, we discussed dynasties in regard to the Mesopotamian early dynasties as described on their king lists. The easiest way to describe the dynasties in that case was to refer to the city-states which were the most dominant at the time. So, a good example would be the well-known Third Dynasty of Or, which pertains to the city-state of Or and the fact that Or had actually been the principal city-state on two occasions previously. With Egypt, it was a little bit different as historians have been able to develop a linear history to Egypt or the lands of the Nile. As such, they have been numbered from 1 to 31, spanning the period from the 4th millennium BCE right through to the 4th century BCE. Egypt's history becomes very significant at three particular times, which we call the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom, which are separated by intermediates and preceded and followed by early and late periods. All of this is encompassed within the 31 dynasties, so we therefore have 31 steps that take us through the story of ancient Egypt from the very beginning to its conquest by the Dorian Greeks, 
contemporary to the Carthaginians, just as a point of reference. So therefore, it would make perfect sense for us to start our story with the first dynasty of Egypt, with its capital at the undiscovered city of Thinis, and its pharaoh called Nama, who we think could be Menis. However, our biggest problem is that we encounter the same problem with this period of Egyptian history as we did with this period of Mesopotamian history, and that there just isn't a huge wealth of artefacts or scriptures surviving which can help us to understand exactly what was going on. One of the few artefacts that can help us to understand the early dynastic period of Egypt is the Palermo Stone. The Palermo Stone is one fragment of a much larger still containing much information relevant to the time period and the history of the kingdom. The information is carved into this hard black stone using the early writing system of Egyptian hieroglyphs. It appears to represent an early census of Egyptian land, so this points towards the earliest pharaohs having a desire to understand the yield of the lands and their ability to measure the flood levels of the Nile to be able to predict future yields. Egyptian Hieroglyphs In Volume 1 we mentioned the Gerzian culture of pre-dynastic Egypt. Pottery sherds have been excavated from this period that are inscribed with images that resemble what we recognise as Egyptian hieroglyphs. Once again, we are referring to a period earlier in the 4th millennium BCE, similar to Tomb 100 at Necken. Some of the first recognisable hieroglyphs can be found on artefacts buried alongside the second dynasty pharaoh called Seth Peribzen. His tomb was located quite near to the ancient upper Egyptian city of Abydos. The Egyptians would use symbols that would not only represent ideas, but they would also represent phonetic sounds. So the symbols wouldn't necessarily be a pictorial story, as it might initially look like, which means that we can describe the script as somewhat alphabetic. We have been somewhat lucky in our discoveries that we can decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs and this in turn has opened up a whole new world of understanding within Egyptology. It was way back in the year 1799 that an officer of the French army named Pierre-François Bouchard was dispatched to Ottoman Egypt by Emperor Napoleon. Bouchard would find himself at the port city of the Nile Delta called Rosetta. It was here that he discovered a fragment of granodiorite stone that contained various symbols and texts. It was quickly determined that the meaning of the writing on the stone was copied into three different languages. The last text was written in ancient Greek which was easy for scholars at the time to recognise. The text above this was Demotic text, 
which rather annoyingly for linguists and translators at the time was a combination of phonetic letters and simple pictorial stories written in a cursive manner. What we mean by that is that they were simplified pictures which could be read in the same way as a comic strip rather than as words as we know them today. The text at the top was original Egyptian hieroglyphs, which was the formal text of Egypt. Due to the fact that this stone, now called the Rosetta Stone, was the same message written in three different languages, this meant that the Rosetta Stone gave scholars a real boost in the understanding of hieroglyphic and demotic languages. So it is thanks to all of this that the studies done since that we can start to take a guess as to what was happening in the early times of ancient Egypt. We associate the first and second dynasties of Egypt as the dynasties that were in power before Egypt's old kingdom period emerged. Through textual and archaeological evidence we can establish some facts about these early dynasties, however. Burial practices. Now, if you recall, when we were discussing the early dynastic period of Mesopotamia, we talked about the royal cemetery at Ur and how it contained the very poignant tomb of Queen Puabi, which was particularly poignant due to the amount of human sacrifice that accompanied her. For details of this you can listen to episode 3. It does seem like similar practices were taking place during the first dynasty of Egypt. Tombs of the first dynasty pharaohs near Abydos clearly demonstrate that a number of very young men were buried alongside their pharaoh. Just like the retinue of Queen Puabi in Ur, we ask the same question whether these young men willingly gave their lives in order to accompany their pharaoh into the afterworld. Recent studies have shown grim evidence of death by strangulation in some cases, so this seems to be very similar to Mesopotamia. Some may have been willing to go with their leader, others may not have been so willing, but were ultimately given no choice. The practice of human sacrifice appears to have stopped abruptly though, with those pharaohs associated with the second dynasty of Egypt not appearing to be accompanied in the same way. We don't know too much about the second dynasty of Egypt. We don't really even know to what extent the city of Memphis was considered a capital city of the unified Egypt over Thinis. For this reason, the lost city of Thinis is often listed as the capital during the Second Dynasty of Egypt, as certainly the last pharaohs of the Second Dynasty were buried near Abydos, alongside the First Dynasty pharaohs. Another problem is that the king lists tend to differ from one another, so we don't have a lineage that we can have complete confidence in. It's all very sketchy when we look back this far. The one undeniable thing that we can say of the people of Egypt is that they very quickly demonstrated how seriously they took the burial of their pharaohs. The most famous of these tombs are 
the famous Egyptian pyramids, but these were predated by smaller buildings. We can recognise this crescendo of spiritual buildings in Mesopotamia as ziggurats gradually became more and more magnificent during the course of the 3rd millennium BCE. We can see a similar thing in Egypt. We are dazzled by the magnificence of the pyramids, but really they are an advancement of the Mastaba tomb. The Mastaba tombs were made with large stones or mud bricks built in courses like the pyramids, but normally no taller than 30 feet in height and with a flat and level top. Within the Mastaba is normally a deep chamber. Now, the Egyptians went to some lengths to dig deep chambers, as it appears that they had discovered that this may be the best way to preserve the body for as long as possible, and it would, of course, be to protect it from the elements. The best way to do this was to bury the body away from the elements and away from any wildlife that may eat it. This desire to preserve the body in the afterlife was also the reason why the Egyptians would go on to practice mummification. The mastabas were used for the burial of pharaohs until the age of the Third Dynasty of Egypt. The Third Dynasty of Egypt was the first of Egypt's Old Kingdom. The Old Kingdom began at the beginning of the 27th century BCE. The ancient Egyptians didn't know it was the Old Kingdom and they wouldn't have even recognised the Third Dynasty as a thing. These are all retrospective names given by modern historians for the sake of distinction. It does help us to present the information in a comprehensive podcast though, so we're grateful to those historians. Pyramids In order to progress the story of ritual burial in Egypt, we really need to introduce Djosa, who was probably the first pharaoh of the third dynasty of Egypt and therefore effectively someone we could regard as possibly the first pharaoh of the Old Kingdom of Egypt. The Old Kingdom would eventually span 500 years and would be represented by the 3rd, 4th, 5th and 6th dynasties. Pinpointing actual facts and dates and pharaohs at the time of the 3rd dynasty is still a hard test. We actually have to say that it is possible that Joseph was the first pharaoh of this dynasty because some lists actually list another pharaoh ruling before him. It certainly only serves to confuse matters that each of the pharaohs also had a Horus name, which is a name that relates more closely to the pharaoh's spiritual significance to the Egyptian people. If you recall, Horus is the falcon deity of Nekan, which was adopted as a significant deity to the Egyptian people as a whole. What we do know about Djoser is that his tomb would be the most impressive tomb to date. It took the rectangular mastaba a stage further by constructing mastaba-style rectangular limestone works 
in decreasing sizes one on top of the other and this would ultimately end up looking like a type of pyramid. Due to its shape it's referred to as a step pyramid because of the edges looking distinctly like six steps. It stands at over 60 metres in height so it was a tremendous feat of engineering and construction. The pyramid represents a central feature of a complex much like the ziggurats of Mesopotamia represents the central feature of a temple complex. The architect was a man called Imhotep who would later become deified. The location is at Saqqara which is near to the ancient city of Memphis which by this time is believed to have supplanted Thinis as the capital of the Egyptian kingdom. We're going to explore pyramids in more detail in a future podcast. It is worth mentioning that the pyramid culture would flourish during the 4th dynasty with the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza. It would become one of the seven wonders of the world and would be the tallest structure in the world until the construction of Lincoln Cathedral in England in 1311. It was constructed during the 26th century BCE and it is possible that it was commissioned by the pharaoh called Khufu. Social Pyramid The pharaohs of Egypt were seen in much more of a sacred manner than the kings of the Near East. The pharaoh was looked upon as a living god and the government of the kingdom was conducted by a vizier. The vizier called Hemiunu apparently inherited this position in the same way that a king would become king due to his bloodline. So his father was also a vizier and Hemiunu is also believed to be the architect of Khufu's Great Pyramid of Giza. So he was of incredibly high standing. The kingdom itself would be governed by the nobility of the kingdom so it would be these nobles that would answer to the vizier. The nobles would be comprised of military leaders and chief priests as well so they would be in control of aspects aside from the day-to-day industrial governance. Those other upper-class, highly educated individuals who were not considered to be nobility may turn out to be scribes due to their literacy. Their skills were put to use for the sake of record-keeping which was invaluable to the nobles and as such they would be very wealthy and powerful due to their importance to the kingdom. The scribes would need to keep a tight record of the activities of the merchants who were essential for the movement of goods and the movement of the kingdom's economy, ensuring that trade opportunities were capitalised upon, especially when it came to acquiring goods from far off lands and trading the kingdom's own produce to encourage wealth into the kingdom. The merchants would not be able to generate income into the kingdom without the skills of the craftsmen and the artisans. Metal workers and stonemasons would be in demand as well 
as potters. These would not necessarily be individuals, but more likely production teams. So the metal workers may have set up much like a factory with a chief operator in charge and therefore held in higher esteem than those who worked under him. In turn, if you were a royal artisan or craftsman, you could be regarded in higher standing still. But those workers that were essential for producing goods would be at the base of the Egyptian society alongside the peasant farmers. Memphis and the Nile The capital of the Old Kingdom of Egypt was at Memphis. Now, in the same way that we had to rely on the work of the classic age Greek historian Herodotus for advice about the ancient history of the Mediterranean, we have an equivalent historian who we believe to have been an Egyptian priest who lived during the 3rd century BCE, and his name was Manetho, and he wrote the Egyptica, which is the history of Egypt. This is a source for the origins of the city of Memphis. Manetho states in his work that the city of Memphis was founded by the pharaoh Menes. Now, here we go, venturing into ambiguity again. Earlier in the podcast, we suggested that Menes could actually be the same person as the pharaoh Nama, the one who is believed to have unified Egypt in the first place. What we may be able to determine is that Memphis was established before it became the Old Kingdom capital. The location of the city of Memphis is to the south of the Nile Delta, effectively in Lower Egypt. The Nile Valley is distinguishable by its fertile lands which are in stark contrast to the desert sands either side of the valley. The fertility of the lands of the delta led to agricultural success with the ability to irrigate the waters and therefore it became a place of population boom, hence potentially why Memphis became much more of a natural choice as the Egyptian capital. The value of the Nile to the people of Egypt and of the Old Kingdom centred at Memphis cannot be understated. Lookouts were posted along the river to try and anticipate the levels of water that could be expected so that the farmers could prepare properly for the oncoming floods. The health of the river would also attract fish and waterfowl which would also serve to enhance the diet of the average Egyptian. Throughout the entire history of ancient Egypt, we can see that the measurement of the Nile's depth was seen as essential knowledge. Nilometers were constructed, and although they were modernised as the age of the ancient Egyptians progressed, they were certainly in use previous to and during the years of the Old Kingdom. The value of the Nilometer would be to predict the behaviour of the Nile during the flood season around August. If there was a low Nile, the lands could remain dry and the crops would fail. If there was a high Nile, the lands could become too flooded and would drown the crops. If a priest was able to read a Nilometer accurately and therefore predict the oncoming flood, 
so that the population could take measures to prepare for whatever was coming and the priest got it right, then the population would believe in the priest's affinity with the gods. The Campaigns of the Old Kingdom Snefru was a 4th dynasty pharaoh believed to have reigned during the 26th century BCE. Snefru's reign is very well known for the emergence of many pyramids which would lead to the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza later in the century. There are however scriptures that give us a strong indication of outward expansion of the Egyptian area of influence. Firstly, we have evidence of a push southwards into the Nubian lands and it could have been these incursions that led to the tribes of these lands deciding to become more unified in order to defy the mighty Egyptians who believed that it was perfectly fine to go and steal a bit of booty from these poor peoples of the lands close to the Nile but pretty much in the north of the modern country of Sudan. It also appears that later on Sneferu instigated campaigns westwards into the Libyan lands, something which was continued by the pharaohs of the future Old Kingdom dynasties. It does also appear that the pharaoh himself may have visited the turquoise mines of the Sinai Peninsula. So such was the success of the Old Kingdom of Egypt that it could easily afford and maybe found it necessary to explore the lands of its neighbours. This period is considered to be a golden age in Egyptian history. The decline of the Old Kingdom One big administrative change to Egyptian governance was the introduction of gnomes, which were administrative areas of both Lower and Upper Egypt, which appear to date back to the prehistoric era. Each gnome had a nomarch, and it appears that initially this administrative setup was a healthy thing for the unified Egyptian kingdom. However, it does appear that during the 6th dynasty of Egypt, this would start to become a problem. For it was towards the end of the 5th dynasty that more powers were devolved down to these nomarchs and this would only stand to make these nomarchs more power hungry as their opportunities increased. Political unrest would ensue and with a child pharaoh, Pepi II, on the throne of Egypt there was very little in the way of firm governance to prevent this situation from manifesting. The tribes of Nubia would also be rebelling against Egyptian expeditionary parties with one senior Egyptian official being killed while there. This was also a time of low Niles, so basically the floodwaters were not reliable enough to guarantee a strong agricultural yield for the Egyptian peoples and this in turn would lead to civil unrest. The pharaoh Pepi II appeared to have no answer to all of this turmoil in his kingdom and seems to have concentrated on trying to cement his eternal afterlife 
by embarking upon tomb building, therefore serving as a distraction from what was really going on in his kingdom. In fact, Pepi II is historically regarded as an ineffective pharaoh. At a time when the kingdom suffering from civil unrest and famine needed a strong leader, they didn't get one. To make matters worse, Pepi II wouldn't die. The irony being that in a kingdom where many pursued the gift of immortality, the fact that a weak pharaoh kept living and living caused detriment in a kingdom that needed rescuing. Pepi II, the child pharaoh, could have ultimately lived to reach his 90s. This old, frail pharaoh watched his kingdom crumble. His passing did not come quick enough to rescue the situation and the old kingdom fell. Next time, we will continue the story and find out what happened next. Thank you very much for listening to this, the first podcast about ancient Egypt. And I've been a little bit intimidated, a little bit daunted by the prospect of doing this podcast, these ancient Egyptian podcasts. I know there's so much expertise out there and so much general knowledge, whereas uh, previous informations that I've distributed in the podcast, like the ancient Near East and prehistoric human evolution, is, is not really as well known. And so it's uh, my pleasure to tackle this subject and uh, I hope we're going to have a lot of fun over the course of the next few podcasts. We received a recommendation on Facebook from Caleb Rowe who states uh, that the podcast is a very logical and analytical glimpse into the distant past. I love history but I've never studied much prehistory. I love it. Yes, uh, the world of prehistory is wonderful when you discover it. It, it sometimes can be quite intimidating because it's uh, it seems like that there's a lot to understand. There's so much scientific jargon and, and what have you. It's very hard to piece it all together. So to have an introduction to prehistory, I think, is a good thing. And so hopefully we've uh, we've done a good job there. Obviously, all the time, things are changing as well in terms of prehistory. So I've recorded this uh, volume of podcasts about prehistory and this stuff being discovered and, and found all the time. There's been even a, a discovery of a new uh, human species even this week, an identification of a new human species. So really, you know, we could get two or three years down the line and a lot of the material in volume one might need to be re-recorded. It's just unfortunately it's just the way it is and rather excitingly the uh, story of prehistory and, and human prehistory is changing all the time now I've been a little bit inactive on Twitter this week just purely because I've had I've had a bit of a nightmare actually I've had a lot of uh, hardware issues and I've had to do a lot of mucking about just to get this podcast out so I'm, I'm quite proud of myself for actually getting there it, it's been a bit of a tough week trying to keep on top so 
fortunately, things are fixed and uh, we're here and we're ready to go with the Egyptian episode. So no problem there, no delay and uh, onwards and upwards. Next week, we should give you an update on all the reviews and feedbacks from the iTunes, from the Apple iTunes customers who have kindly reviewed the podcast. I'll do one big update next week. I'd like to give thanks to Brenda Wess for becoming a patron of the podcast. And uh, if you want to become a patron of the podcast, that would be highly appreciated. Uh, Due to the amount of traffic that the History of the World podcast is getting, they're trying to charge me more for the distribution of the podcast. Well, you know, perhaps we ought to march down to their offices and do something about that. But nonetheless, um, any contributions to the podcast can be done at Patreon, and it does really, really help. There are running costs to the podcast, to the website, to the hosting platform, and uh, all the material that's needed to research the podcast it all costs money any contributions are greatly received Uh, however i will say that in two weeks time um the food soldier who's uh, that's his twitter handle by the way will be running the london marathon and if you visit my facebook page you'll find out how you can sponsor him he's running for the princess royal trust for carers in hampshire which is a county in the south of England in the United Kingdom. And uh, his real name is Brendan Wood. He's running for the Princess Royal Trust of Carers in the London Marathon. You can click through to his donation page by going to the Facebook page. So if you're thinking about making a contribution, it's probably better off you make it there than to me. Um, Certainly, I'm not about to go bankrupt, but... Uh, this is a very worthy cause that Brendan is running the London Marathon for. Not least of all to say that actually running the London Marathon is a huge thing to do. To run 26 miles, my goodness, I just don't know. How, I don't know whether I'd be able to do such a thing in my in my life at all. It just sounds incredible. So what a great gesture and sacrifice and and something that you'll never forget. And hopefully you'll raise an awful lot of money to a very very worthy cause um, you can also find a link to it on the uh, on the Twitter page as well so if you, if you don't have Facebook then Twitter is a good place to go for that as well anyway that's all for this week uh, that was the beginning of ancient Egypt the old kingdom next week we'll be looking at the first intermediate period and the middle kingdom so be sure to come back this time next week it will be episode 13 ancient egypt the middle kingdom until then cheerio the history of the world podcast is available on many different podcast platforms so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.